Second Chronicles 11, as we continue to chart a course through the Word of God. I got an email today. I just wanted to share with you before we get into the study. Uh, and it's actually, uh, Steve Berenson was just shooting something over to me that he got from Greg Laurie. Those of you who know Greg Laurie, pastor of Harvest Fellowship, and uh, started the Harvest Crusades a long time ago. And he has a daily or at least a weekly uh, devotional that he sends out. I thought it was interesting because at our shepherds meeting last night, we were talking a lot about just the supernatural and the Holy Spirit. And Steve sent me this email, and I didn't, I didn't copy down what you wrote, but there was one thing that Steve wrote that, that really stuck with me, and I thought it was great. He said, you know, everything that has to do with the Lord is supernatural, including the Word. And sometimes we forget that. When we open up the Bible and we study the Word, we're not just students in college classes trying to learn something. We are opening up to the supernatural. God has gifted us with a word that is supernatural. Things happen to us, to our hearts and our minds and our whole perspective and our very spirits when we're in the word. That's a supernatural thing. Because our God, as Naomi, my my daughter likes to sing, is a medical God. My God is a medical God. Not medical God, miracle God, but with her accent. She sings that song, Our God is a medical God. Yes, He is. (laughs) And so even the opening of Scripture, don't forget that. When you open up the Bible, whether it's to meditate on a verse, or this evening as we study, we are opening to the supernatural. Something that only God can do. That no man among us could. Anyway, here's the email. Let me share this with you quickly. Greg Laurie wrote uh, Tuesday, today, or yesterday, August 4th, when relevance becomes dangerous. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14.6. Greg says, I've been preaching for a fairly long time now and have seen a number of generations come and go. The boomers, the busters, generations X, Y, and Z. And one thing that has not changed over the years is my emphasis on the teaching of the Bible and the preaching of the Gospel. That can never change, and it never will. It must never change, because I know the gospel is, quote, the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, Romans 1.16. And I have experienced the impact of it in my own life. But the gospel is under attack like never before. While the church has always had its disagreements, this is a life and death debate. It is a debate among a growing number of people who call themselves evangelicals as to whether or not Jesus Christ is really the only way to salvation and whether all scripture is indeed inspired by God. He goes on to write, there's a movement afoot known as the emergent church that is gaining momentum today. We've talked about the emergent church before. It is especially popular among people who have been raised in the evangelical church and who want to be real, who want something that is authentic, just as my generation did, Greg writes. But being real is not the most important thing. Being right with God is the most important thing. And sometimes in the quest of being real and authentic, some of these people are buying into dangerous ideas. Let's get our priorities straight. Let's get back to the message again. Otherwise, we will lose what little influence we have as the church today. I'm all for being contemporary. I am all for being relevant. But at the same time, we must be truthful. We must be accurate. And most importantly, we must be biblical. And to that, I say a hearty amen. I read that and I think, wow, when I was, especially when I was a youth pastor, um, I wanted the, if, if the emerging church had happened at that time, I don't know, I might have been someone swayed by it. 
because I wanted so much to be on the cutting edge of hip and relevant and you know authentic and I didn't want the old school stuff and it's amazing the older I get the more I recognize there's an awful lot of the old school that is just right on target that we don't have to strive, and I know I'm a broken record on this, but we don't have to strive for relevance. We have the supernatural Word of God, which is absolutely relevant. I don't have to make it relevant for you, even tonight as we study. It is relevant. It has impact because the Spirit of God is speaking into our hearts. He's telling you things I'm not even going to say tonight. You're going to see things in His Word. He's going to draw your attention, and five or ten minutes are going to go by, and you're not even going to know what I'm talking about, but you and the Spirit are going to be having a great time. And you're going to be hearing truth. That's why we open the Word. That's why we we read and we stay true to the Word. And and, and it's also why prayer is so incredibly important. We have some things we were talking about in our staff meeting today about this fall and our fall schedule and things coming up and opportunities as a body to pray more and worship more and and have more agenda-free opportunities to be together and just let, let God do His thing with us. But I want you all to understand and know I will still be teaching the Word. Every Sunday, every Wednesday, that's it. We may add two. We may do more and offer more opportunities. But we're going to continue in the Word of God together because it's so critically important. So, Father, before we get into chapter 11 tonight, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would do what You've promised to do. Bring to mind all that You have taught us. And, Lord, implant Your Word into our hearts tonight even more so that we have this wonderful blessing, Father, our swords that are readily available to us. I pray that there will be an implantation of your word so deep tonight that even without memorization, things will be recalled throughout this next week as we need them. I pray, Lord, that you will speak with relevance and clarity and we ask you to be our teacher. I've done some of the preparation and study. I realize that, Lord, but we ask you now to be our teacher, that we all together as a fellowship would gather at your feet and hear from your Spirit, Lord Jesus. We thank you for this opportunity to be here and be in your Word. Teach us now, Spirit of Christ, in Jesus' name. Amen. April 12th, 1861, Confederate batteries barraged Fort Sumter, South Carolina. Beginning the bloodiest war you all know in U.S. history, with estimates of anywhere from 620,000 to 700,000 Americans killed. It was a four-year battle that often pitted brother against brother. Lincoln sought to do in that war exactly what Rehoboam wants to do as we begin chapter 11 of Second Chronicles, and that is a war to restore. A union is broken. The Union is divided. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. That's how we ended up chapter 10. It's a tragedy. It is one of the darkest days in all of Israel's history. And so, in this difficult time, the northern tribes rebelled against Rehoboam. He wants to lower the boom, be heavier on the people than his father was. Uh, It's ironic. He sent his secretary of the treasury, Timothy Geit, I mean Hadoram, to resolve matters in northern Israel, and they stoned him to death. There's a lesson in there. Never send your tax guide to the people to clear things up. It's not wise. So they stone him to death, and Rehoboam calls then for a war to restore. Verse 1, when Rehoboam had come to Jerusalem, he assembled the house of Judah and Benjamin, the two southern tribes that now will make up the kingdom of Judah. 
180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against Israel, to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam. This is on his heart to do. Gather up, guys. We are going to war with the northern kingdom because they are not going to be a kingdom. We want to be one kingdom. That's the way it's supposed to be. God has called for a man of the line of Judah to sit on the throne. That's me. Let's go fight. Let me tell you something, gang. Sometimes fighting to restore a broken union is not the Lord's immediate will. Listen closely, for we tread on some difficult ground here. Verse 2. But the word of the Lord came to Shimeiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all Israel and Judah and Benjamin, saying, Thus says the Lord, You shall not go up or fight against your relatives. Return every man to his house, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the words of the Lord and returned from going against Jeroboam. Now Rehoboam lived in Jerusalem and he built cities for defense in Judah, Thus he built Bethlehem and Atom and Tekoa. That Tekoa is the uh, region from which the prophet Amos comes, or, or came. Bethzer, Soko, Adullam, Gath, Merishah, Ziph, Adorim, Lachish, Azekah, Zorah, Aijalon, and Hebron, which are fortified cities in Judah and in Benjamin. He also strengthened the fortresses and put officers in them and stores of food, food oil, and wine. He put shields and spears in every city. What's he doing? He's preparing for war. Now, he was told not to. And they listened to the Lord and did not immediately go right up and fight. But he is preparing for war here. He strengthened them greatly. So he held Judah and Benjamin. Moreover, verse 13, the priests and the Levites who were in all Israel stood with him from all of their districts. Is there a time when we are not to strive for restoration? And the answer is yes, when the striving will only deepen the division. And I, I think there's something here, and I, I really, I, I went, I asked the Lord several times about this this week because we know that the Lord wants us to be about restoration. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation, Paul says. We are supposed to be a people who constantly seek to restore in relationship. And yet, when I look at this passage and I think about what's going on, I, I had to ask the question: Is there a time when we are not to immediately jump in there and fight for restoration? I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you fought for restoration and you made it worse. Where you went after the other party and tried to pull him back into relationship and it just messed it up more. Yes, there is a time we are not to strive, not to rush into, not to force restoration, not to war to restore. Well, Pastor Rick, are you saying don't seek restoration? No, I'm not saying that. Always seek to restore, but never by striving. Not by warring, not by fighting. Rather, the best mode of restoration we have, the first step of restoration we must take is prayer. We go first to the Lord. If you are involved in, if you have a broken relationship, family relationship, friendship, whatever it may be, you go first to the Lord. I need your wisdom, Father. How do I move? How do I act? What do I do? Having been in this situation myself, I messed things up royally several times just trying because my heart was restore the relationship. But my actions just kept making it worse until I learned to shut up, sit back, say, Lord, I just need you to move here. Restoration is never a question of if, but it is often a question of when. And sometimes as much as we want to restore a relationship, if we jump in, we're going to mess it up more. We need to allow time 
for healing to come and for the Lord to move and to soften a heart. When a, when a heart is hard and it's closed or unwilling, even the greatest war to restore can cause more problems than the original breaking in the first place. Even more important, God may be doing something we're completely unaware of. We jump right in to try and fix something and, and He's saying, you know, I'm not sure I want it fixed yet. Was that really biblical? It was in Israel's case. As a matter of fact, the Lord did not want the divided kingdom to immediately unite. And He tells Rehoboam, don't fight for it. Pull back. Pull back your men. Don't you go to battle. Going on in verse 14, watch what's going on here in, in the northern kingdom. You know, Rehoboam wants to take the kingdom back and God's saying, don't do it. Why not? Well, here's one reason. The Levites left their pasture lands and their property and came to Judah and Jerusalem for Jeroboam and his sons had excluded them from serving as priests to the Lord. In other words, he kicked them out. You're not going to be our priests, even though they were God's priests. Not going to be mine. Verse 15, he set up priests of his own for the high places. Those are places of pagan worship, gang. For the satyrs and for the calves which he had made. Now, verse 16, those from all the tribes of Israel who set their hearts on seeking the Lord God of Israel followed them to Jerusalem, which tells you something. It tells you that there were people living in Jerusalem from all 12 tribes. Yes, there was a divided kingdom, but there was still all Israel to a degree in Judah, in the cities of Judah, in Jerusalem. So people who think the ten northern tribes all got wiped out and lost completely are wrong. There there were always a remnant of even the northern tribes involved there in Jerusalem. And so they followed them to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord, the God of their fathers. They recognized Jerusalem was the place of sacrifice. Verse 17, they strengthened the kingdom of Judah and supported Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, for three years. And they walked in the way of David and Solomon for three years. Three good, glorious years. Where Rehoboam led the people right because he walked in the way of David. Anytime scripture says a king walked in the way of David, they're doing the right thing. Because David is the picture the standard that God raises up is the man after his own heart. But in the north, Jeroboam built two golden calves, one all the way up in the far north in the city of Dan, one further down in uh, the southern area, Shiloh. He built these golden calves as not, not as calf worship, but as representations of Yahweh. His thinking was messed up. We, we talked about this back in Exodus. That it's not a matter of, of a completely foreign God. It's a matter of putting something to represent God. You cannot represent God. There's only ever been one representation of God on earth that was actual, factual, and right on target, and that was Jesus Christ. Any other representation is off, because a calf can't represent God. Another person can't. An idol can't. You can't even have a picture that you say, there he is. Isn't Jesus beautiful with the lamb on his shoulders? That's him. No, it's not. It's some idea, some artist rendering. And so Jeroboam is trying to bring his own representation of God into the northern kingdom. And perhaps at this time a more perfect union would have meant a more widespread idolatry because that was the sin of Jeroboam. And throughout 1 Kings especially, and into 2 Kings, every one of the kings, 19 kings in the northern kingdom, every single one was bad. Not a good one in the lot. And among all those kings, it keeps going back because he continued in the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. What sin is that? Idolatry. And this already was happening in the northern regions. And so in the dividing of the kingdom, Rehoboam wanted to restore, and God says, no, not right now. There's a problem up north. 
And I don't want the South infected by it. Remember, this division in the first place happened by the word of the Lord. Second Chronicles 10.15 told us it was a turn of events from God that the Lord might establish His word. Did you know that God sometimes gives up on people? Strong words. We don't want to think that way. But it's true. Not forever, but for a season, God gives people over. Would you keep your finger there in, in uh, Second Chronicles? Flip over to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. While you're turning there, we're talking today, uh, talking with Penelope, just about this whole issue of discipline and love. And what does the Lord's love really look like? Because a lot of times our love can be rather wishy-washy. We think it's loving just to kind of stand by someone and they may be spiraling out of control, maybe going down the tubes, but we're standing there because, man, we love them. <laughs> we, don't, we don't want to be hurtful to them by telling them what they're doing is wrong. I want you to notice how the Lord shows love here and how He disciplines. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. Let me tell you something. I just read this article today about the sun and the moon. Our sun and moon. And the size. How is it, someone might ask, that the moon can actually get in front of the sun, and we know the sun is 400 times larger than the moon. So how can the moon get between the sun and the earth and block it out? I'll tell you how. Because it's exactly, not only is the sun 400 times larger, but the sun is also, I think it's 400,000 light years further. I could be wrong. Please don't quote me scientifically on that. But the bottom line of the article is this that the distance between the moon and the sun and the size of the moon is absolutely perfect for us to actually have a lunar eclipse. It's absolutely perfect. In fact, the placement of the moon, if we didn't have the moon there, the earth would wobble on its axis. But because the moon is there and the gravitational pull, it stops all wobbling. So none of us get seasick on a daily basis. I think that's very nice of the Father. And the article actually said, isn't it lucky that the sun and the moon are placed just as they are? I went, I I, I can't even understand that thinking. Isn't it lucky? Paul says, since the creation of the world, we have seen the power of God. Open your eyes. You cannot deny His power in the world round about us. And so, he says, we are without excuse. Strong words. We have no excuse. Verse 21, even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. We call that science. (laughs) And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to... They're Christian scientists, by the way. I'm not anti-science, but I'm anti-stupid science. Um, They became futile in their speculations. Foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of an incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So what did God do? Verse 24, He gave them over. In fact, in the next few verses, three times, Paul writes, God gave them over. He gave up on them. Again, not completely, 
But in essence, God handed them over to their sin. This is what He's doing with northern Israel. Don't, don't you restore that relationship, Rehoboam, because I'm doing something else right now. I am giving them over to their sin. I'm going to let them feel the full weight of what they've decided to do. And I don't want you messing that up by some kind of spindly, false, weak restoration that gets in the way of what I'm doing. He gave them over, verse 24, in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so their bodies would be dishonored among them. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is forever blessed. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over, second time, to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And that's just Bible, gang. That's just God's righteousness explaining that we were not created to burn in passion men for men. It wasn't Adam and Steve. You've heard that, I'm sure. It's Adam and Eve. He goes on and and it says that... uh, They'll receive the due penalty of their error. Verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Now you read that, and if you stopped after Romans chapter 1, you might say, why would God do that? And then Romans chapter 2, he goes on to talk about how even in Israel, he gave them over. And and then you get to chapter 3, and we finally find out why. Because it is only through the blood of Jesus that a person can be saved, and we had to learn that. We had to figure that out. We had to come to the end of ourselves to find the beginning of Jesus and realize only by grace can a man be saved. God gave them over. Doesn't He care? Of course He does. But restoration cannot happen if restoration is not desired. I've learned that firsthand. Restoration is not desired by the other party. You're not going to make it happen no matter how hard you fight and strive and struggle and war to make it happen. So back up, slow down, trust the Lord, give it to Him. Don't stop praying for restoration. Don't give up on restoration, but give it to the Lord to soften hearts and to prepare the way for it. For God's purposes, the divided kingdom was necessary. And in the kingdom of Israel, as I said, not a single good king would reign, not one. At least in southern Judah, out of 20 kings, uh, eight would be good. We have seven or eight good kings, five that are exemplary, and we have five revivals that happened there in Judah. That's a good thing. Best of all, Jesus comes right down the line of the kings of Judah, which is why patience and prayer are crucial to restoration. Patience and prayer. We don't war to restore. Restoration does not come by force. But but, but what they're doing to me, Rick, is just wrong. Pray and wait. Yeah, but, but he let me down. Pray and wait. She lied. He manipulated. They hurt me. Pray and wait. Pray and wait. Let the Lord open the doors of restoration. Rehoboam, boy, he began well. Just like David. I mean, he made a blunder at the beginning, but God was going to divide the kingdom one way or another anyway. But for three years, they were good years. And then verse 18 picks up with that ominous word, Then. Then Rehoboam took as a wife Mahalat, the daughter of Yerimoth, the son of David and of Abihail, the daughter of Eliab and the son of Jesse, and she bore him sons, Jeush, Shemariah, and Zaham. And after he took Meacha, the daughter of Absalom, and she bore him Abijah, 
and Atai and Ziza, Ziza, yeah, Ziza and Shalomit. Rehoboam loved Maacah, the daughter of Absalom, more than all his other wives and concubines. You might want to underline all because they were plenty. For he had taken 18 wives and 60 concubines and fathered 28 sons and 60 daughters. Rehoboam appointed Abijah, the son of Maacah, as head and leader among his brothers, for he intended to make him king. He acted wisely and distributed some of his sons throughout all the territory of Judah and Benjamin to all the fortified cities. He gave them food in abundance. He's doing so well. And then it tells us, and he sought many wives. Now you may notice in your Bibles it says, for them. It's probably italicized. One of the things I appreciate about the translators of the, of the NASB is they italicize any words. King James, I believe, does it too. Any words that are not in the original translation, but are added just for, for the flow and the reading. So oftentimes I'll drop those words in my reading and see what it says without them. And he sought many wives, is what it says. Now, is, it, is the implication that he sought the wives for his sons? I guess that's a possibility. But the reality is he sought many wives for himself. And you know where I'm going with this. We've seen this. There's a mess here. If you read on into it, and I think this kind of takes us right into chapter 12, when the kingdom of Rehoboam was established, established and strong, he and all Israel with him forsook the law of the Lord. Why? I go right back to he sought many wives. He sought many wives, and he and all Israel with him forsook the law of the Lord. Deuteronomy 17.17, 17, which is the pinnacle verse in studying First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, he shall not, the king, multiply wives for himself. Why? Or else his heart will turn away. It's what happened with Solomon. It's what happened with Rehoboam. It happens again and again. The multiplication of wives turns the heart away from God. Not one wife. The marrying of one woman, gentlemen, can be a very good thing and can shore up and encourage your heart in the Lord. The marrying of many wives, that's a different thing. And we kind of joke about it, I do, and just say, I can't even imagine being married to three wives. I mean, I can't understand what, you know? She's wonderful, I'm the problem. Let's just get that clear right up front. But the many wives situation, you might say, well, thankfully this doesn't apply to us today because polygamy is not really a big deal. Well, it does apply to us today. You see, part of the reason that the Lord lays out for us the one man with one woman for one life ideal is because He's offering us a good balance. I'm not so good on my own. (laughs) And Cheryl, on her own, she lacks some things as well. Maybe not as many as me, but she does. But together, we're better. Together with Christ at the center, we have a good thing in the Lord. And this is what He's invited us to and called us to. But gang, begin to multiply relationships in or outside of marriage and the balance gets thrown. We say, well, I'm not adding wives. I'm just adding an affair. You're adding wives. Same thing. It's no different. And as we begin to do that, it messes things up. Even in a marriage where there's not an adulterous affair or relationship, a marriage with a heavy-handed husband throws things out of balance. A marriage with a brow-beating wife throws things out of balance. A marriage where one is a believer and one is not is very difficult. Some of you have walked through that and experienced it. And inevitably, all these things will turn a heart away from the Lord because sometimes you just get weary fighting the battle. Keep your finger there and flip over to 1 Peter just for a moment. 
is one of the most precious teachings to a marriage that is in all of Scripture that Peter offers here. And I just I love this, and it's a great place to go for wives and husbands in considering how you function in your marriage, or if you're looking forward to a marriage. First Peter chapter three. I think if we live this way, we wouldn't have all the problems we have. In the same way, Peter said, You wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one Without a word, ladies, you might underline that, without a word, by the behavior of their wives. In other words, let them see Christ in you. You don't have to say, why don't you ever go to church? You just let them see why it's so valuable to you. You make them want it. Man, every time she comes home from church, she's in such a good mood. I'm missing something. That's what you want. As they observe your chaste and respectful Behavior, And he goes on to talk about adornment and just basically the behavior, the fruit really of walking with the Lord. And he would say, ladies, if your husband is unfaithful or not following the Lord, man, let him see the fruit of your relationship with Jesus. And by seeing that, he can be one without a word. And he says, you husbands, verse 7, and ladies, don't be offended by this, but hear this. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman. It doesn't mean she's a weakling, guys. But it means treat her tenderly and gently and with kindness and care. Since she is a woman, and show her honor now as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. You see the beauty of that balance? A man who treats his wife with tenderness and care and a woman who, who treats her husband not with forcing and pushing all the time, but, but just letting the fruit of her relationship with Christ be the example. What a beautiful picture of a beautiful marriage. And above all, Christ at the center of that. Ephesians 5.21, Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Yeah, but she! You know, I don't want to hear but she. Well, yeah, but he! I don't want to hear that. What are you doing? Where's your heart? How are you following the Lord? You follow the Lord and let your spouse learn from that if they need to do that. But things were out of balance and out of whack for Rehoboam. He had all these wives and just like Solomon, his father before him, all the wives brought in their idolatry. Verse 2. And it came about in King Rehoboam's fifth year because they had been unfaithful to the Lord. Note that. Because of that, that Shishak... The king of Egypt, also one of the major stars in the old series, The Land of the Lost. Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem with 1,200 chariots and 60,000 horsemen. And with people who came with him from Egypt, they were without number. The Lubim, the Sukiim, and the Ethiopians. And he captured the fortified cities of Judah and came as far as Jerusalem. And we have ancient records that have been discovered, ancient Egyptian records of this king, Shishak, that were discovered about 40 years ago. And they detail a list of 156 cities in and around Jerusalem that the Egyptians pillaged at this very time. So they came on and they came on strong. And they really, they trashed the glory that Solomon had left for his son and for the kingdom. They completely trashed it. But note this, it was the Lord's doing. He gave them over. He did it. Verse 5, Then Shemaiah the prophet came to Jeroboam and the princes of Judah who gathered at Jerusalem because of Shishak. And, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, You have forsaken me, so I have also forsaken you to Shishak. What is this, Lord? Quid pro quo? You know, if we scratch your back, you'll scratch ours? That's not it. Read on. So the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said... 
the Lord is righteous. When the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shimei, saying they've humbled themselves, so I will not destroy them. Immediate response, by the way. The Lord is drawn to humility. But I will grant them some measure of deliverance, and my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by means of Shishak. Now here's the answer to why the Lord would do this. But they will become his slaves so that they may learn the difference between my service and the service of the kingdoms of the countries. This is why God gives them over. So that they will learn the difference. This is why the Lord looks at sinful man and says, Is that what you want in your life? Go for it. Experience it. Go for it all. Experience it all. Live it all. Go, you know, experience the depth, depth of your sin. Go ahead. Well, why, Lord? Are you just giving up on them? No. I want them to see the difference. I want you to know there is life where you serve the world and there is life where you serve me and the difference is stunning and dramatic and you need to be aware of that. And so he allows us to walk down those roads and to mess up our lives. And some have said, amazingly, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. It's one of the most stupid things I've ever heard said in my life. The truth is there is a huge chasm between the service of the Lord and the service of the world and God would have us know the difference. He allowed Shishak to come down and to pillage and to take much from Israel. He saved them because of their humility but he still allowed them to be in service to the Egyptian king because he wanted them to see here's the difference. You want to live like the world? Here's how they live. I love this quote. C.H. Spurgeon said, God will not allow us as His children to sin successfully. God will not allow us as His children to sin successfully. He will allow you to make sin choices, but you're not going to be successful at it. It's going to mess you up. It's going to mess me up. i got to say this, gang. Sadly, in the church, we do allow our brothers and sisters to sin successfully. We wink at sin. We ignore it. In the name of grace, sometimes we actually sit in support of it. Because we don't want to drive away a brother or sister who is choosing a sinful life. We just kind of pretend like they're not, hey, they are, but you know, I've got to be there for them. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. What are you protecting them from? <coughs> the Lord gave them over. Sometimes we do more damage and more harm to a person by trying to stay there and be nice and, and, and careful with them and, and, and loving while they're in the midst of their sin than if we just pulled back and said, if you're going to live that lifestyle, I'm not going to walk with you in it. I can't. All right, that's kind of harsh. That's like that tough love stuff, right? No, it's godly love. It's saying, if you want this, you've got to see what it's like. But you're not going to experience this with my help. And then, by the way, you go home and you pray and pray and pray and pray for that person. But you don't walk with them on the path of sin. Jesus didn't. This is God's disciplinary method, gang. It is such that when we sin, we fail. When we sin, life gets sour. When we sin, it doesn't work out so well. He puts two clear options before us so that we can make a choice. So that we can see wow, if I'm going to walk this way, it's not a pretty place to go. That's why I want to walk this way. Think about this for a moment. A couple of things, and this is just jotting these things down as they came to me today. Service of the world versus service of God. Service of the world is compulsory. 
If you get into serving the world, you get pressed into that service. It's a forced thing. It's compulsory. Service of the Lord is by choice. Hey, none of you have to be here tonight. Good news. You can walk out right now if you want to. It's okay. No one's going to force you. God will not, as you've heard me say before, He's not going to drag anybody kicking and screaming through the gates of heaven. It's your choice. But serving the world, that is a compulsory thing. I think it's interesting in Mark 15. A guy named Simon comes into Jerusalem. He's on holiday. He just comes walking in, minding his own business. Next thing they know, he knows, Mark 15, 21, they pressed into service this passerby coming in from the country, Simon of Cyrene, to bear Jesus' cross. Nobody asked Simon, hey, would you be willing to help Jesus out here? That would be really cool if you could... No. They just said, you, cross, walk. And so this man, not by choice, had to carry the cross of the Messiah out to Golgotha. Would you have wanted to do that? Granted, I know Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. But would you have wanted to be the vehicle by which the cross got to its end point so Jesus could get crucified on it? But Simon was forced. He didn't have a choice. That is service of the world. You are pressed into, you are forced to doing what you really end up not wanting to do. This innocent bystander of the crucifixion, he's forced into service. One way or another, the brutal world will press us into service. And by contrast, God never coerces, He never forces, He never presses. And even in the church, let me say this to you, if you ever feel coerced into giving or ministry or serving of any kind, that ain't the Lord. Because He's not going to coerce you to do it. He wants you to, out of joy and freedom. Because it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Service of the world, not only is it compulsory where service of the Lord is by choice, service of the world brings about strife. It's hard work. It's labor. Service of the Lord brings peace and joy. Isaiah 32.17 says, The work of righteousness will be peace. You know, when, when Jesus said, or when, when Peter writes that God said, Be holy because I am holy. When Jesus says, seek first the kingdom and His righteousness, He's not implying this big, heavy religious burden on us. No, the reality is, again, the work of righteousness will be peace. The service of righteousness is quietness and confidence. As you pursue righteousness, it doesn't get harder, it gets easier. And it's wonderful, and it's blessing. We're not going to get to chapter 14 tonight, but I'll tell you, Asa comes along and he's one of the good kings of Judah. And three times in chapter 14, you're going to read the phrase, the land was undisturbed. For ten years under Asa's rule, the land was undisturbed. I looked up that word, undisturbed. It's literally, it's the Hebrew word, shakat. It means quiet. Shakat. The land was quiet. Because when a king of righteousness is reigning, when Asa was reigning in righteousness, there was peace. When the king of righteousness, Jesus Christ, reigns in our hearts, there will be peace. That's service to the Lord. Service to the world brings about strife. Service of the world depletes. You know what it's like after a long day at work? You just come home and you can barely even turn on the TV or, or get a bite to eat because you're, you're depleted. You've got to get some rest. Service of the Lord is not like that. It replenishes. And I've seen this time and time again. When I'm in service with the Lord, I'm refreshed. It's a good thing. Ephesians chapter 6. Paul says, With good will, render service as to the Lord, and not to men, knowing whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Peter said to him in Matthew 19, 
Lord, behold, we've left everything and followed you. What's, what's there going to be for us? Which is great. Don't you just love Peter? What, what, what do I get? Because I gave up everything, man. And Jesus says, Truly I say to you that those of you who have followed me in the, in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit in His glorious throne, you also will sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. An apostolic promise, which is awesome. But he goes on and says, And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or farms, for my name's sake, will receive many times as much, and will inherit eternal life. Why? Because serving the Lord replenishes. Whereas serving the world depletes. Service of the world brings about regret. Service of the Lord brings about rejoicing. I think it's interesting, Paul wrote in Philippians 2.17, he said, Even if I am being poured out, like a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. How's that, Paul? In service and sacrifice. Because service to the Lord brings about joy. It's not a heavy thing. And if you serve the Lord sorrowfully, stop. Reconsider. Who are you serving? Because if you're serving the Lord, it will bring joy in your life. The service of the world. Finally, the last one. And we could just go on all night. We just do this together. Okay, what service to the world? It's so easy. We see the difference clearly. But it's a duty. Whereas service of the Lord is an honor and a privilege. 1 Timothy 1.12 I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because He considered me faithful putting me into service. Ephesians 4.1 Therefore I, Paul says, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Can I tell, let you guys in on a little secret? And please don't tell anybody this. I love coming down here and teaching on Wednesday night. I really do. People say, oh Rick, you're working so hard. Doesn't feel like it. It does not feel like it. I love it. It's not even just sitting here. I love getting in my office, opening up the Word, getting the computer going, and, okay, Lord, what do we have today? I just love it. Because of all these things, and especially because, gang, don't you know it's an honor to serve God? And a privilege and a blessing. It's a high honorable calling. Well, we, Again, we could go on and on, but I believe the Lord is saying to Rehoboam here, I want you to see the difference. You're going to serve Egypt for a while in Shishak, because I want you to see the difference. Here's what the world's like to serve them. Now think about what it was like just serving me. But watch this. The moment we realize the goodness of serving the Lord and we humble ourselves as His servants, rescue comes immediately. Rescue with ramifications, unfortunately. Verse 9. So Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem and he took the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's palace. He took everything. He even took the golden shields which Solomon had made. And then King Rehoboam made shields of bronze in their place and committed them to the care of the commanders of the guard who guarded the door of the king's house. Do you remember that in Solomon's day, bronze was, even silver was really worthless because there was so much gold. Now it's all they got. As often as the king entered the house of the Lord, the guards came and carried them. And then brought them back into the guard's room. Bronze shields. They had gold. Now it's bronze. And when he humbled himself, verse 12, the anger of the Lord turned away from him so as not to destroy him completely. And also, conditions were good in Judah. Think about the contrast of Rehoboam's life. This was a man who was raised in Solomon's palace. 
Solomon's son. Lap of luxury. There was nothing wanting in the palace when Rehoboam was a kid. Now he's king. Dad is dead. The country is in servitude to Egypt. And the lap of luxury, well, the sheen is gone. The gold is bronze. The beauty, the splendor, the glory will not return. The gold standard of living, God does not restore that. It's a different Jerusalem, a different Judah than it was under Solomon. And the glory days will not return to Rehoboam and Judah. There will be good days, but the glory of Solomon will not return, has yet to return to Israel. It will, but it has yet to do so. But notice this last line here in verse 12. I just love the way this reads. And also, conditions were good in Judah. See, in the midst of all this mess, because Rehoboam humbles himself, God says, okay, conditions are good. I'm going to make for good conditions. I immediately thought, Psalm 34, verse 8, one of my favorite verses, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. There is something better for us in goodness even than in glory. There's something better for us in goodness than in glory. Here's what I mean by that. It's one thing to live a glorious life. You know, a life in the public eye, a life of flash and pizzazz and greatness and golden shields. That's one thing. It's another thing to just live in the goodness of God. Sometimes the goodness of God in our lives is not a flashy thing at all. It's just good. It's just good. The Lord says in Jeremiah 31.14, My people will be satisfied with my goodness. I think that's interesting. He doesn't say my people will be satisfied when once again my glory returns. He says, no, they're going to be satisfied with my goodness. I think goodness may be a better thing for us. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. Paul says godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we've brought nothing into the world. We can't take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. He's talking about when conditions are good. Paul wrote about this at a time when conditions were not good in his life. When things were a mess in his life, and yet, still good. Conditions were good in Judah. For Paul, conditions were good in Jesus. Let me ask you, is your faith supported by circumstances and experiences? Are those the twin pillars of your faith? Because if they are, those are pretty flimsy supports. Circumstance and experience. What happens to faith when the gold shields of glory come down? When the enemy attacks and all this left for us, maybe because we need to humble ourselves as bronze. When the sheen has left all the wonder and the glory. Paul says, hey, godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Goodness. On Monday, I was striving pretty big time spiritually. I was having a rough a rough go. I, from time to time, I do. I, I've shared with you that I, I don't know how Paul could say that he bore daily the weight of all the churches. Because by comparison, I have one little church that meets in a barn and it gets heavy sometimes. I can't imagine where Paul was at. And I was thinking about a lot of relationship things and things going on within the fellowship and, and things that, that concern my heart. And, and it was heavy on me. And Cheryl knows that. She almost just, you know, it's a good time not to talk to Rick because I get in that place and she knows. And we had this uh, picnic for all the children that were adopted from Beacon House in Ghana 
you know there's several of them, um, all were meeting out at Washington Park, and Ramana, the head of the orphanage from Ghana, is in the States, or was in the States, and, and also the director of, um, of child welfare for Ghana was here. So we had this special picnic and meeting, and we're driving out there, and I didn't want to go, because I was thinking about the church and things going on, and you know, I just need to stay home and pray my way through this, but I had to go. So I get in the car, and we drive over there, and we got there, and, and two things happened. I sat on the hillside, and the first thing was I was looking out over Washington Park, and you know, if you've been there, the view is just stunning. Out across the water, out to the islands, and the fog was lying low. And this side of the fog, some, immediately the orcas showed up, and it was whale soup out there. I mean, they were all, I mean, two, at least two pods, may have even been three pods out there, and they were breaching. And all the Beacon House kids were like, Whoa! And running down to the shore and watching, and everybody was excited. And I sat there on the hillside and just went, God, you are so good. You are just so good. And the thought entered my mind, you know, for all the different things that I can strive about as a pastor and worry about and pray over, I get to live here. I get to, I, look where God has placed me. Praise God! You know what? This church fell apart and it was me and Tom and Jackie on a Sunday morning. Praise God, I still get to live here. You guys will be paying my support. But it's a good place just to be. And even beyond that, to see the kids. All these kids. You know, from Africa now with families laughing and playing and joyfully running around. One of those kids, Lydia, we baptized Sunday morning. God is so good. He is just so good. Remember that whatever challenges you might be facing, you may lose the glory. It may not be the the wonder and splendor that you had hoped it would be. But it's always good. Conditions are always good in Jesus. Verse 13. So King Rehoboam strengthened himself in Jerusalem and he reigned. Now Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen from all the tribes of Israel, to put his name there. Note that, underline that. We see that from time to time. A reminder that the zip code of Jerusalem is God's zip code. That is his city. He chose it. He still, I believe, sees that as his city. He will reign there and rule from there one day. But the city where the Lord had chosen to put his name from all the tribes of Israel. And Rehoboam's mother's name was Naamah the Ammonitess. It's interesting that the mothers are always named in the lineage of the kings. We see this in 1 Kings and 2 Kings. We see it now in the Chronicles that when the king is listed, we know who the dad is because it's the previous king. The mother's name is always given to, and I believe what the Lord is showing us is that mama has as much responsibility and credit for the king for the goodness or evil of the son as dad does. This is a joint effort. Mom and dad get to work together on the offspring and on how they come out. And Rehoboam's mama, Naama, Mama Naama, was not even an Israelite. No, she was an Ammonite. She was a foreigner. She was a pagan. And like all of the wives who brought their gods into the house when Solomon married those 700, now Rehoboam is following the same pattern and marrying wives outside of Israel and along with them are coming, and this is why I pointed this out before, that he sought many wives and they forsook the Lord because all of that pagan influence comes rolling in. Verse 14, finishing up this section, he did evil because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Now the acts of Rehoboam from first to last, are they not written in the records of Shimei the prophet and of uh, Edo the seer, 
According to the genealogical enrollment, there were wars between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually. So ultimately, he did go to war. And ultimately, those battles did happen, which often does happen in the case of division. And Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, and his son Abijah became king in his place. So enter Rehoboam's son, and now civil war is going to continue on to the next generation. This is Rehoboam's uh, legacy that he's going to hand to his son, civil war. And here's where we pick up in verse 1, chapter 13. In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, Abijah became king over Judah. He reigned three years, a whopping three years, in Jerusalem, which will tell you something about Abijah. His mother's name was Micaiah, the daughter of Uriel of Gabeah. Now there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam, and Abijah began the battle with an army of valiant warriors, 400,000 chosen men. All right. Well, Jeroboam drew up in battle formation against him with 800,000 chosen men who were valiant warriors. These are not good odds. <laughs> 400,000 against 800,000. But you know what? Abijah's not a good king. And honestly, he has a short reign because of his evil. In the first, uh, book of 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 3, tells us Abijah walked in all the sins of his father which he had committed before him. His heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God like the heart of his father David. So Abijah is one of the bad ones. And he only has a short reign because his heart is not with the Lord. However, for the rest of chapter 13, we interestingly get to see a good moment. In fact, a moment of faith. Outnumbered two to one, Abijah tries now to talk his way out of the battle. Watch this, verse 4. Then Abijah stood on Mount Zimaraim, which is the, in the hill country of Ephraim, and said, Listen to me, Jeroboam and all Israel. Do you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave rule over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his master. And worthless men gathered about him, scoundrels who proved too strong for Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when he was young and timid and could not hold his own against them. So now, you intend to resist the kingdom of the Lord through the sons of David, being a great multitude and having with you the golden calves which Jeroboam made gods for you. Have you not driven out the priests of the Lord? And the sons of Aaron and the Levites and made for yourselves priests like the people of other lands? Whoever comes to consecrate himself with a young bull and seven rams, even he may become a priest of what are no gods. That that was the standard. Bring seven bulls, or however many he says there, bring a young bull and seven rams and sacrifice them. And you get to be a priest in Jeroboam's religious faith there. And I love how he says that these are no gods. Whereas for us... Now Abijah says, The Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken Him. And the sons of Aaron are ministering to the Lord as priests, and the Levites attend to their work. Every morning and evening they burn to the Lord, burnt offerings and fragrant incense, and the showbread is set on the clean table, and the golden lampstand with its lamps is ready to light every evening, for we keep the charge of the Lord our God. But you have forsaken Him. Now behold, God is with us at our head and His priests with the signal trumpets to sound the alarm against you. O sons of Israel, do not fight against the Lord God of your fathers, for you will not succeed. It's a great speech. It reads like a powerful speech of faith. I don't think it was. How can you say that, Rick? Because his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord like his father David was. 
Because first Kings tells us clearly, Abijah was not a faithful follower of the Lord. Well, so how does he make this great speech? Well, let you think about this. He declares to the armies of Israel that they don't have a prayer, and he states two great truths. I'll get back to why I don't think he was really faithful in this. But the first truth he states is a prophetic truth. We stand on covenant. And he's right, they did. God made a covenant with David and would follow through in that covenant. And he reminds the rebellious kingdom of Israel that God's intention was that the son of David would rule on the throne by, check this, a covenant of salt. What's that? When a person, you may recall this, wanted to enter into a binding agreement to literally cut covenant, which is what the word means in the Hebrew, to cut. They would take a bull or a ram, they would cut it in half, set the pieces aside from each other, and they would walk together through the blood, signifying this is how serious the covenant is. If you break this covenant, I will break you like this bull. This is a life or death thing. That's how serious covenant was. That's what God did with Abraham with the animals that were cut in half. And remember, the Lord went through while Abraham slept and made that covenant. Well, okay, that's a covenant. What's a covenant of salt? Well, what does salt do? It preserves. It's durable. It keeps something for longer than it would keep on its own. A covenant of salt is a covenant that is longer than a normal covenant. Literally, an eternal covenant. A durable, preserved covenant. Numbers 18, 19 the Lord says, All the offerings of the holy gifts which the son of Israel, sons of Israel offer to the Lord, I have given to you and your sons and your daughters with you as a perpetual allotment. It is an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord to you and your descendants with you. Everlasting covenant. Abijah rightly claims the covenant of salt. He's on to something here. The covenant God made with David to set a descendant of his on the throne forever. You and I know who that is. That's Jesus Christ. Covenant of salt. It is a covenant that is durable, preserved, and we will see fulfilled completely in the coming kingdom. So Abijah claims this covenant of salt, this durable covenant, and he professes this, pro- this prophetic truth. He also offers a practical truth. He says, and I love the phrase, God is at our head. You're fighting against us, but God is at our head. What does that mean? It means you won't get to our head because God's there first. You fight me, you fight Yahweh. You fight me, you are fighting the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. He is at our head. And he says through this, Judah, we have the temple, we have the priesthood, the sacrifices, and therefore we have the covering and the protection of Yahweh. Now again, there's a problem with Abijah saying these things. He's not a follower of the Lord. He's an evil king. So how can he say these things? What, you've never heard anybody, somebody claim to be God's man and still be deceptive and, and lie? <laughs> Have you ever heard a great sermon by someone only to find out that at the same time they were in the midst of some kind of horrible affair or sin problem in their life? Boy, it's easy to say stuff. You can say anything. <laughs> Pretend I didn't hear that. Abijah wasn't walking with God, but Jeroboam didn't know that. So as he declares and makes this flowery speech, he's trying to set them back on their heels a bit. He's he's hoping, against hope, 400,000 against 800,000, that maybe he has a chance if he can throw them off a bit. These are big words from a man of little faith, if any faith at all. But didn't you say that this chapter was about a moment of faith? Yes, but not Abijah's. This is about a moment of faith of the people 
of Judah. As Abijah jabbered on, the attack comes from the rear. Watch this, verse 13. But Jeroboam had set an ambush to come from the rear. So that Israel was in front of Judah and the ambush was behind them. When Judah turned around, behold, they were attacked both in front and the rear. And so they cried to the Lord and the the priests blew the trumpets. And the men of Judah raised the war cry. And when the men of Judah raised the war cry, then it was that God routed Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. When the sons of Israel fled before Judah, God gave them into their hand. Abijah and his people defeated them with a very great slaughter. Watch this. So that 500,000 chosen men of Israel fell slain. Remember the stat that I gave you for the Civil War? 620,000. This is one battle. And 500 of the 800,000 Israelite warriors were slain that day. 500,000 were slain by 400,000. Why? Because God was with them. Because the Lord made it happen. We're told in verse 18, Thus the sons of Israel were subdued at that time, and the sons of Judah conquered because, because, because they trusted in the Lord, the God of their fathers. There's the moment of faith. Here's why I think, by the way, this chapter is here. We see this great moment of faith. Who trusted the Lord? The sons of Judah did. The people cry out. They're in despair. They're in distress. They are being attacked from before and behind. What do we do? Where do we go? We can't go forward. We can't go back. So we've got to go up. And they cry out to the Lord. And the Lord immediately responds to their cry. And He protects them. And so Abijah is in the midst of the right, even though his life was all wrong. Because the people cried out to the Lord. But the story is not about Abijah. It's actually not really even about the people of Judah. It's about the Lord. The focus is Him. What do you do when you feel surrounded? When you're discouraged because at, at every turn... You can't go forward, you can't go back, you feel stuck where you are. When the outlook is dismal before you and behind you, where do you look? Look up. It's the best place to look. Jeroboam's tactic is typical of satanic attacks. This is what our enemy does. Let me make this real clear for you. He strikes from behind. He attempts to make you ashamed of things you've done, ashamed of your past. He comes from the rear. Remember what you did. Look at who you are. The things that you may try and cover up with all your Christian stuff, but it's still there. I know what you did. You know what you did. He attacks from the rear. It's an ambush. Paul says, Philippians 3.13, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. This is key to spiritual life and spiritual battling. I forget what lies behind. You can attack all you want from the rear, Satan. It doesn't mean a thing to me because I don't remember it. Well, why don't you remember it? Because God doesn't. (laughs) Because it's history for the Lord. It's history for me. Brothers and sisters, if there's something in your past that is dogging you, would you just let it go? Let it go. That's not who you are in Jesus Christ. That is not the measure of your righteousness before God. Jesus' grace is the measure of your righteousness. Your faith in His grace is what saves you. He also strikes from before. He attempts to raise anxiety about tomorrow. While you're in the midst of dealing with with this this sense of shame about the past, he then hits you with, yeah, and how are you going to handle this now? What are you going to do with tomorrow or the day after that? You don't even know what you're doing. Look at what you've done. Look at where you're going. You're in a mess. And Paul says, 
Forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on, not to the future. Listen to this, not to the future. I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I'm not hoping to be a better Christian tomorrow. I'm hoping to be in the presence of the Lord when He calls me home. Period. That's that's the motivation. That's the draw forward. Not how I'll be as a pastor in a year. It's who I am in Jesus Christ right now and where I'm headed when He calls me home. That's the goal. It's not about past or future. It's about Him. It's upward, not forward, not backward. Upward. If your focus is upward, if you're looking at the upward call of God, then the typical attacks of Satan from behind and before can't touch you. It can't touch you. I love how Jesus says this. Speaking of a day we know is coming on the world, that day that Jesus describes as a day of dismay and perplexity and then fainting from fear, it is coming, gang. And he says in Luke 21:28, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your head because your redemption draws near. One of my favorite verses. What a beautiful statement of Jesus. Look up. Heads up. This is what Israel did in the middle of the battle. Enemy before, enemy behind. They cried out to the Lord. They looked up. Great advice. Lord, we thank You for that. When the enemy attacks you in this way, do what Judah did. Focus on His goodness for today and His glorious return coming tomorrow. Well, verse 19... Abijah pursued Jeroboam and captured from him several cities, Bethel with its villages, and Jeshana with its villages, and Ephron with its villages. Jeroboam, and there's a slight mention here, remember Chronicles is about the line of Judah, but we do have occasional mention of what's happening up north. Jeroboam did not again recover strength in the days of Abijah, and the Lord struck him, and he died. But Abijah became powerful and took 14 wives to himself and became father of 22 sons and 16 daughters. Now the rest of the acts of Abijah and his ways and his words are written in the treatise of the prophet... um, You could call him the prophet I do. 14 wives to himself. There's a lot of that going on. Prophet Edo. So that's where we end for tonight. And in the moment of desperation... Remember this. This is why this chapter is here. Because Abijah is not a king to look at. He's not a king of example. He's not a king of revival. He's not a king who even really followed after the Lord in great faithfulness. So why does the chronicler even mention this here? Because the chronicler is messianic in his writing. He is looking forward as he writes, prophetically and messianically, to the coming of the great king Jesus. So this isn't about Abijah. It is about how God responds to His people as they are in need. This chapter is here to encourage us tonight. The Lord includes this for you and I to understand when a prayer is offered up in sincerity, the Lord responds immediately and effectively. When we're turning to Him. When we place all of it in His hands. Don't look back ashamed. That's not the stuff of faith. That's the stuff of fear. And don't look forward with anxiety. Look up in faith. And look to the goodness of God. And look to the glorious return of Jesus. I know three things for certain tonight. He is coming quickly. He hears us when we pray. And He is good. Amen? Jesus, we praise You for Your goodness. We thank You for Your Word tonight. And Lord, I just want to pray this prayer over my brothers and sisters. If anyone is in the midst of spiritual attack... 
or warfare right now, that their gaze would be shifted upward. Satan has nothing on us. Lord, we know you call him the accuser of the brethren. Well, he doesn't have any right to accuse those of us covered in the blood of Jesus. And under the protection of the Lamb. And under the, Lord, the propitiation, the expiation, the complete cleansing of our sin. We have nothing behind us for which we need to be ashamed. And nothing before us for which we need to be worried or anxious. We have only You, Jesus. And so we pray, Lord, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of God. And Jesus, we're excited about it. We pray for the day when we will be there and worship You at Your throne. Encourage Your people, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.